welcome to the Fat Tail Investment Podcast today. I'm Callum Newman, and we've got Cameron Murray on today, who is uh, an academic based up in Queensland, but also a very keen observer and investor in the housing market. Um, the reason I got him on, of course, we're hearing all this bearish commentary about housing prices are going to go down, uh, you know, 50 to 30%, according to some people. Interest rates are going to crash the market. Well, I'm not so certain. Uh, I've been following this for a long time. Uh, and while you know various segments of the market might come under pressure, we can see from the credit statistics, for example, that investors are coming back into the market. Now, I can tell you back in 2018, 2017, around the time of the Royal Commission and the aftermath, those guys fled away. And if you go and look up the RBA credit statistics, you can see they just they just disappeared out of the market. They're coming back. Well, why are they coming back? Well, we've got immigration coming back, rents are rising. Um, there's lots of mineral wealth coming into places like Queensland and, and Perth. So while Sydney and Melbourne, the top end might be coming under pressure. Uh, and of course, we've got very low unemployment around Australia. So it's not clear that housing is as dire as some people say. It doesn't mean it can't become that. Um, but I wanted to get Cam on to get a different view and, and to see how he he's uh, tracking things. Um, you might remember that we did a podcast with him last year, I think, uh, from memory. Anyway, earlier, we did one uh, previously with him about uh, uh, some of the issues around housing. This is more focused on what he thinks is going on uh, and where interest rates and housing prices might go. So here he is, Cameron Murray, who also has a new book coming out, which he talks about at the end as well. So you can also check that out. Uh, so I'll shut up now and we'll get Cam ready to go. Alrighty, I've got Cam Marion, who I alluded to earlier. And we're going to talk housing here because it's um, very confused, I think, for everybody out there at the moment. Some people have called for a, between, say, a 10 to 30% correction over the next couple of years. And others say there's nothing to worry about. So we're going to find out what's what's driving both the bulls and the bears as far as their opinions go. But just as a way of context, I picked up my paper on the weekend and it says that uh, the median house price, uh, sorry, I should say the combined capital city drop is minus half a percent, <laughs> which in the context of all the fear and the, <laughs> the headlines lately and the collapse in some of the share prices doesn't seem that bad. So I guess the ultra bear at the moment who's sort of grabbed the mantle is Christopher Joy, who in June referred to a, uh, an RBA model that they now track at his firm, Coolabar Capital, and he suggested at the time that housing could go down between 20 and 30%. Now, that was teeing off the aggressive market pricing for the cash rate at the time. Things have settled down a little bit since. So that's a long-winded way of sort of setting the scene. So, Cam, from your view, what is going on in the housing market right now? Look, that's a million-dollar question, uh, Callum. Look, I, I, I'm not going to say I'm here to predict the future. What I can do is sort of explain how I digest the information and synthesise it and come to a sort of range of plausible views. Uh, and I think the interesting thing is that Chris Joy and I were one of the few people, the two of us in early and mid 2020 saying that prices were more likely to rise and fall when most of the banks and most of the commentators were panicking, panicking about COVID and declining employment and all the rest of it. And we instead saw the effect of the enormous reduction in interest rates and what I now call the outsized stimulus 
And uh, at, the, at the time, people thought we were crazy. <laughs> Many people did. Uh, but we were proven correct by events. I guess I, my view at the moment is, is probably not as um, strong as Chris Joy's on where property is going from here. He thinks the rate rises are, are sufficient to push prices down 15 to 25%, I think, uh, was his last forecast. Now, I think he's baking in a lot more uh, monetary policy tightening than, than I am. So maybe we should chat about where, why our views differ two years later. Uh, and I think the main, probably the main uh, point we differ is I, I agree on his general model and the importance of interest rates, but I think prices didn't quite get, they didn't quite fully adjust upwards to the low interest rates. We didn't have the time to. So he's saying 15 to 20% down or 15 to 25% down from a price we didn't quite get to. And assuming interest rates are going to rise very aggressively, a whole extra uh, percent on the cash rate. So we're looking at sort of two and a half percent. That's a very conditional forecast. And I, I just don't think all those conditions are going to play out. Um, so, yeah, so that's, well, that's it, where we... I was taking yeah. off his original article he wrote in June. And at the time he was that aggressive, you know, the most bearish range of that was based off a cash rate over uh, 4%, which would take the, the mortgage rates over six. Um, now, part of what's uh, driving this, of course, what, uh, is the falls in Sydney, which seem to be the worst of the, the cities, and then mm-hmm. Melbourne's sort of dragging it down. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's even useful to talk about uh, a general real estate market when the reality is you might buy in Brisbane, I might be buying in Adelaide and, and it's so variable across all the different cities and the, and the rents and the, and the incomes, et cetera. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, prices in Adelaide are still rising. Brisbane prices are still up 10% in the last 12 months, despite some recent falls. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think another uh, sort of sub-market or division that we can think about is, is houses versus apartments. What we saw in the last two years was the real bias towards detached housing and you know, commuter regions around the capital cities. And I think that's going to reverse. The yields on apartments are very good right now, despite the current interest rates. And they've been rising because of the rising rents and the pe- people returning to the cities uh, in the last six months. So you're actually seeing investors returning to the market a lot more. And they buy different sorts of houses to what we saw in the last two years where we had record first home buying, record upgrading, record mobility of wealthy households into these uh, sort of premium commuter regions or lifestyle regions. Uh, so there's also a possibility for the overall price index to, to have a much softer fall than Chris's model because we'll see the big falls in those areas that did adjust but we might see apartments rise again in Sydney. A lot of the prices in Sydney apartments are still where they were five or six years ago. Remember, Sydney prices fell in 2017 to 2019 quite significantly. Uh, so if we take a slightly longer term view, maybe you know we can see that, that there's probably good investments in property still, and there's probably very risky ones. 
And I think you have to be aware of what those are. And yes, you're right. Talking about this one aggregate number is going to sort of hide a lot of the important detail. Well, it's funny you mentioned the, the break in 2017 for Sydney. I was looking at the latest, well, so I was looking at the RBA statistics for credit growth for investors, right? And you go back and look at 2017, 2018, 2019, they were just flat. They just weren't there. There was almost no growth in investing lending for, for ages. And it really wasn't until 2021 that they really started to kick in again. Um, and that's another factor that pushes back against this ultra bearish scenario, right? Like people can see rents rising. Um, maybe yeah, you're might- exactly right. Uh, I think that's another compositional issue that's often overlooked. I, I don't know if you remember, but in August 2021, 12 months ago, when we were all completing the census that we all uh, do every five years in Australia, I, I made the prediction that the home ownership rate in Australia will be higher during August 2021 than it was five years previously in August 2016, uh, which most people thought I was crazy. Uh, people like Saul Eslake were still out there saying, you know, home ownership, home ownership is in decline. But the reason I did is, is exactly what you said uh, earlier, Callum, that investors were absent from the market from 2017 for four years prior to that, uh, when I made that call. And we know the only way to increase home ownership is when investors sell to first home buyers. Right? You change the composition of who owns the dwellings. And we'd seen negative investor mortgage growth for a few years there. Uh, and then we saw a boom in first home buying. Uh, it picked up in 2017, 2018, 2019, and then a massive spike in 2020, 21. And then we completed the census. So we had this real change of changing of the guard of who owned the dwellings in Australia. And, you know, it wasn't much. It was 0.6%. So, um, so there are 10 million dwellings. So what's that? 100,000 is, is 1%. So we're talking about 60,000 uh, people on balance uh, shifted into home ownership. So from I've got a feeling your next prediction will be that baton will go back the other way by the next census and they'll, the investors will be buying them. <laughs> well, uh, it, it probably will because if, if you look at the pattern <laughs> since the mid-1970s, what you do find is the... This, this moves with the cycle in many ways. And so you get these declines and then you get uh, all the investors panic and there's this pent up demand for first home buyers who've been waiting for the opportunity who aren't really timing the market because of sort of yield concerns, but more lifestyle concerns. Um, so you do find that. So I guess uh, give, me, give me another three years to see what the credit patterns look like for lending to investors, lending to first home buyers. If what I think might happen of uh, investors returning to the market, like we're seeing, then then yeah, I'll, I'll probably be forecasting the opposite. Just you mentioned Saul is like there. I'll just throw something. I noticed in this article on the Weekend Australian, Shane Oliver was quoted. Uh, you know, he's saying he's kind of bearish on things, and he always pops out. These sort of old guard of guys, you always see them quoted it all the time. It's like dialer quote Shane Oliver, Saul is like. Uh, there's probably a couple more I uh, can't remember off the top of my head. Do you think those guys bring useful insights or they're, are they a little bit too mainstream in the way they model the the, the economy and the housing market? I mean, we all get it wrong. I, I'm, I'm not sort look, of saying... I, I, yeah, look, I, I don't really know is the answer. Uh, I, 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 don't, I think there is a lot of wisdom that comes with that experience and, and I've been liking 
the way, for example, Ross Gittins, the, the Fairfax journalist, has been yep. really breaking the mould and, and putting some tough questions to the economics community. So, so I, I don't think you know, that's the case. Some people age and become more conformist and then some people age and decide, well, I'm old enough now to say what I really think. I don't have to say <laughs> that. So, uh, so I don't think age is uh, a major factor there um, at, at all. Uh, I do like reading the opinions of these guys. I think as long as you're thoughtful and put in the effort, I, I, I like to hear what you have to say. Well, speaking of like the conventional view, we've got the RBA that came out. I forget the name of the lady, but she's the deputy governor. She did a speech sort of rebuffing again. Lucy Ellis I, would be, wouldn't it? I don't think it was Lucy Ellis, actually. No, okay. Maybe she's not. The, the one I'm referring to, she did a, I don't know if you, it was a speech on whether Australian households can cope with rising interest rates. The RBA says, yes, they can for a bunch of reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of equity in housing, savings, yeah. buffers. That's Michelle Bullock, yes, Which that's right. Which I go along with. But, again, Christopher Joy, some of the more bearish guys go, no, you know, it's the marginal borrower, the guys that, you know, that are on the low incomes. Again, they're going to be the, the ones, uh, you know, causing the problems. Did you see that speech or, or you, you maybe? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, you, you right, yeah I did see that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, think, I think actually both of those views are somewhat valid, uh, unfortunately. Uh, I think you can thread the needle on those. Uh, yes, on average, households are, are not highly leveraged uh, for the prevailing interest rate. Mortgage repayments have been historically low. The period of low interest rates and the COVID stimulus and the current booming labour market has really got people ahead on mortgage repayments. So on average, it's very good. And Chris Joy's also got a point that on the margin, prices are set by people who actually transact in the market. So what that means is I think Chris is sort of saying the demand side will dry up because of the high interest rates. Uh, and so, you know, that will set the price. And I think what uh, Michelle Bullock and the RBA are saying is, well, the supply side is not going to panic either. So because people aren't desperate to sell, even if a few buyers did buy recently, that's not a large proportion of the stock. We think most households, their, their incomes are rising, they can handle it. Um, so we don't think there'll be panic selling either. So even if demand dries up, well, people, suppliers don't have to rush. We won't get that panic in the market. We'll just see a decline in turnover. You know, we've got very patient sellers, very patient discerning buyers now with high interest rates. So I do think the last stages of the cycle, what you find is the market gets really thin very few buyers and sellers at these high prices. And I think that's what we're going to see. We saw a huge amount of turnover the last couple of years. And we're going to see that really thin out with a lot of patient sellers and patient buyers. Interesting that 4% cash rate forecast came from the financial markets. There were economists, which we uh, I don't know the name specifically, but they were never as aggressive in, in forecasting that. Um, they were at least, I think, 1% lower. So at the yeah. moment, you might say the economists were, got it right thus far and the market overreacted. Interesting for me, because I watched the stock market, some of those property stocks that were and tech stocks that were hammered on this idea of rates going up that fast have started yeah. to rally back up a little bit. And that would seem to be the market agreeing with you and sort of saying, well, maybe we've you know, overly bearish on, on, on what's happening. But again, yeah. you, there are many unknown knowns and known knowns and known unknowns. So 
this is brings us to the limit of forecasting, is it? You just can't tell what's coming around the corner. So you yeah. can only take so, it yeah. as 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 the data comes in. I think it's worth considering considering a scenario. Uh, Chris Joy is 15%, say we get 15% decline in the overall index, right? So that's going to mean some areas are down 25 to 30% to get 15% in the overall Australia-wide price index. I, I just can't see a scenario where that happens and the Reserve Bank doesn't respond by lowering interest rates quite substantially. That's a, that's a really massive hit to balance sheets. And if that's just happened while the interest repayments and mortgage repayments have boosted to record highs. So what we also see now in that futures pricing of uh, interest rates is that uh, uh, sort of an increase and then a decline coming in the second half of next year already. So I think uh, we're seeing that realisation collectively that uh, the, the, the banks uh, have tightened aggressively but they've probably swung too hard that way now so when they dropped interest rates during covid they probably swung a bit too hard down now they're trying to catch up and the market's saying well actually they're gonna they're not going to swing as hard there it's they're going to have to find some a better balance yes i know you were actually in the paper the other day yourself um in regards to a, a paper that you did with prosper that yeah. was touching on land release did mm-hmm. you touch at all in that paper on the current issues in construction or was that purely a look at how developers stage release their land and it, it was a general observation of what they do to prop up their balance sheets basically <laughs> yes yeah, so that, that looked historically up till the january 2020 um so during the period where there, there really were no construction uh constraints um, well just tell us about it anyway because this is part of what feeds into yeah. Housing cycles, right? Because people go, oh, supply and demand, they're building more houses. Well, are they really? Yeah. So it, it, let me let me start elsewhere. There was an article in the New York Times two weeks ago, and I'll start there, uh, by Connor Doherty, who is their city's opinion writer, who writes about urban issues in cities and has been a, a YIMBY, which is a yes in my backyard. Uh, he famously wrote an article where the headline was build, 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 build. That's literally the headline in the New York Times and said, yeah, we need more houses. You know, the the NIMBYs, the not in my backyard, local uh, anti-development grandparents and homeowners and wealthy people, they've got to get out of the way and let the market build. And then just two years later, so two weeks ago, he wrote an article that said, uh, we need to build, but the market doesn't seem to want to build. And I don't know what the headline was. I'll have to just look it, was it up. No build, 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 build. <laughs> it was exactly the opposite. It says, oh, yeah, it was. Uh, and he interviewed developers who said, oh, yeah, you know, the buyers are drying up. So we're stopping our land releases and we're, we're waiting in future projects. And yeah, we don't, want to, we don't want to put our capital at risk and flood the market while demand's down. That'd be silly. And he's, so he's come to this realization that, huh. I just said build, 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 build. And now they're just telling me they only build when demand is growing and then they just stop and they wait around for the next boom. <laughs> uh, what's going on? So his version was maybe we should do some counter-cyclical public housing construction, uh, which I have been a big fan of for a long time. So that's nice. Uh, but what's interesting then is this, this report for Prosper that I've been helping them with in the background the last uh, six months, sort of quantified how much 
property developers with large master plan communities with over 3,000 housing lots are, are willing to vary how quickly they supply to the market. So uh, the argument, of course, is that uh, we supply as fast as we can, but planning is constraining us. So if that's true, if I look at a large already approved project, what I should see is that most months you're at the maximum level of sales. You are just going as fast as you can because you've got your approval now. But what we actually see is that the majority of months, there's a, you know, a, a sort of stylized description is that you'll sell two to five new housing lots a month while the market's soft because you don't want to depress prices, sometimes less, sometimes months of zero. Uh, and then if the market booms, you'll sell 60 or 80 and you'll fast track the next two stages. You'll pre-sell, even though you're um, not ready to build, you'll lock in those buyers today and you'll increase your sales by a factor of you know, 25 or 30 when there's a boom. And then when the boom's over, but prices are twice as high as what they were before, you'll stop selling again. You can go back to just a handful per month. So the question you have from a sort of economic point of view is, well, if prices are twice as high as they were, how come you're still not selling 60 a month? Why are you stopping? Because it was profitable for you two years ago to sell at half the price. You should, be, you should keep flooding the market, but you're not. You're stopping to keep prices where they are. It's like there's a built-in ratchet here, right? Um, so that's essentially the observation in that report. It, it just looks at uh, the dynamics of, of selling during the boom and waiting during the bust. And what I find really interesting is the press coverage that this report got in Australia. Uh, obviously, the journalists asked the UDIA and property developers for a response. A few of them said no comment. Uh, but some said, you know, we endeavour to build as fast as we can but planning is still constraining us, some generic claim to that effect. And of course, if that was true, that they're building as fast as possible, they're actually making less money than if they built slower and waited to sell more in future periods when the price is higher. So, you know, they're, they're essentially lying to us. And, and the beautiful part of that is that it, the New York Times uh, writer just a couple of weeks ago had developers telling him that no, it's economics 101. When demand stopped, we stopped selling. You know, it's, it's basic. We're here to make money. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. Who's lying to me here? The guy whose story fits the facts or the guy whose story doesn't fit the facts? You're both developers. So, so from their perspective, it is rational, right? They, 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 they've got their course, land banks yeah. there. And, the, and that's what, so as a, that's how they make money. Is a social cost to what they're doing is, is what you're arguing. So what is the solution yeah. to stop that behavior? So what I'm saying is there is a social cost because land is a monopoly and we've known that for a long time and that's why it's not free because there's no input costs to land, right? It's just, um, you know, we decided we'd draw lines on a map and allocate <laughs> who owns what and all of a sudden it's worth money and you're like, hang on a minute, how can that be worth money? Uh, so it's, it's just a sort of monopoly ownership system that we created. And I guess my bugbear is the fact that so many academics, economists, journalists have believed the industry when they say, Hey, no, we're going to undercut each other's prices and really compete and bring down prices, man. When it's a complete lie because it's not economically sensible for them. Uh, what's the solution? Uh, I'm a big fan of 
Henry George's big idea was, you know, the 19th century political economist, Henry George, he said, uh, you know, we should tax the land and redistribute the land value. But I think there's actually another way to do it. You can either distribute the value by taxing the land and redistributing the cash, or you can just simply redistribute the land directly. And that's the sort of approach that Singapore takes where they have the, the public housing developer uh, promises every Singapore citizen or permanent residence a free piece of land. They just pay the construction cost um, for their dwelling. And so that's how they reallocate housing. And Singapore is the you know, world's best uh, example in, of providing affordable home ownership for citizens. It went from a 20% uh, home ownership rate in the 1960s to 89% today because of this scheme. Is it, do they, they own the land or they have the lease, the, the right to a lease? Well, they have a 99-year lease, just like in the ACT, but of course, no one's going to make everyone pay for their home again. And when I spoke to the, some officials uh, inside the Housing Development Board, they said, yeah, there's a lot of talk now because some of the leases are up in 30 years. Are we going to make people purchase their apartment again? And the answer is no. And this already came up in the ACT because 19, uh, 1911 or, or so were the first leases, 99-year leases in the ACT. And they decided that, well, it's not a good look for government to take everyone's homes when their lease is up. So what we'll do is we'll just let you roll it over for another 99 years for $264 fee. And so in effect, the leasehold freehold thing is, is, is relatively unimportant. Um, but to be honest, I would say not important at all, right? If you can house everyone in 50 years, it doesn't matter if your lease is 99 years, 999 or 9,999. Like, um, it, it's not a big deal uh, because once someone owns it, their descendants also inherit and own a property, at least one of them. And those descendants that don't get the option. So um, it, never, it never leaves the pool of housing into the investor market. It always stays in the resident owner-occupier market. And that's why I've proposed copying Singapore's model in Australia if we really want to do something about housing uh, affordability. And let me just... And the odds of that happening are what? Five percent? Uh, yeah, zero point something percent. Yeah. <laughs> so the way I'm approaching this is is trying to get a pilot project, and that's where I think there might be some chance. For example, uh, nurses, school teachers, and what we call you know, essential workers in high value suburbs in Sydney and Melbourne. Very difficult to pay a teacher more because they get to teach at the fancy school in the expensive area. But you can certainly accommodate them uh, at a discounted price. And so if there were pilots of things like that for key workers, I think you'd find that um, everyone else would want it. The nurses' union would turn around and go, this should be standard. Everyone should have it. And then the police would turn around and say it, and, and you'd get that cycle. And so there's a petition right now, actually, in the ACT to do a trial because the ACT government already owns all the land. And... Uh, Quite interesting, there was a recent sale they tried to make of a development site to a private developer on their new tram corridor heading north in the ACT, and they couldn't get the $48 million they wanted for the site. So they put, withdrew it from sale, and they're reconsidering what they're going to do. And I, 
I, I'm trying to tell people in the ACT, why don't you build this housing that you think people want and rent it to the people you want at the price you think they should have housing for? Like, you already own the land. There's nothing more to do. What value add is a developer doing? They're going to pay the architect for you. They're going to pay the planner for you. Like, you already own the site. What are you getting from this? You know, you're selling it to get what you want because you won't actually design and build the thing you actually want. It's, it blows my mind. Um, so there's a petition going there to trial that. And I think, uh, you know, once you had a bit of success, I think it will flow on. However, if, if prices do start turning downwards, everyone will switch their concerns. The media, the political apparatus will then start focusing on, we've got to stop prices falling, right? Uh, totally undermining what they've been saying that we're going to stop house prices rising with upzoning or whatever the case may be. They'll, they'll change their mind and that will be the new panic. That's always the thing too, isn't it? It's like a you mentioned like, you know, when you forecast the rate rises, nobody thinks that the RBA can't turn around and cut them again or give cheap funding to the banks or buy the loans yeah. off the banks or the government could come in with first home buyer grants or, uh, you know, whatever they want to do to prop it up. Um, That's and right. again, the, the bias for the political system is always to prop it up. Is that fair to say? I would say, yeah, yeah. I've written quite extensively about that. And, I, and I, the way I put it is the average politician owns 2.3 properties worth a million dollars each. And uh, it's very hard to throw a few hundred people in a room with billions of dollars worth of an asset and get them to agree to rules that wipe billions of dollars from their own balance sheets. Very, very difficult, especially when all their family, friends and so on uh, are in the same situation. So, yeah, that's definitely the bias. And I think so, that's why well, Fred, I, I Fred Harrison, the model through to be... Um, you know, the our favourite property man, he sort of says the problem now is the culture. It's just it's so ingrained, this system, that there's so many vested interests that it's almost unbreakable in a way. Uh, yeah, tell me about vested interests. You know, I've got a book coming out. Uh, hey! That's uh, the update of Game of Mates, uh, second edition. Uh, I'd say the first version was a booklet. This is actually a real book published by a real book publisher. Um, and yes, I, I would totally agree on the vested interests uh, in all corners. Um, I'm actually writing another book now about housing markets and the vested interests. Uh, it, you know, some people like to say, well, maybe we should have uh, more renters because once we get over 50% renters, the political dynamic will change and it'll be a vote winner to do good yep. things for renters and tax homeowners and, and so forth. I'm not sure that's the case. If you look at Germany and uh, Berlin in particular, it has some of the highest rental ratios in the world. Uh, everybody's still very upset about housing there. I was going to say, it's proposals... the, the renters protesting, not the... Uh, Correct. Yeah, so there were proposals before Parliament to seize the assets of large uh, landlords and take them into control of the state and, and rent them at regulated rents. That's that's where they are in terms of their housing. So I think, you know, if, to sum up my big picture view on housing, the social problem of housing everyone in an affordable way and high-quality accommodation, um, the pro private property market is just not going to get you there. The private property market will give you the private property market outcome as it has for hundreds if not thousands of years. Uh, and I say thousands because I've 
studied the archaeological records from ancient Mesopotamia of property transactions, which were some of the best kept stone records. Okay, and I didn't a real know that. focus of archaeologists. And you find uh, all the same patterns in the data there as you do in modern times. Um, so, and, and prior to the, uh, after the Second World War, uh, there were books written 80 years ago explaining how the private market could never satisfy the working class and everyone lived in slums and only the landlords and the lawyers and business owners could afford a reasonable house. And if you look globally, that was the case. And it was only after the Second World War where we had that real global push to make housing a government's problem. Like the war was the government's problem. So housing soldiers, when they got back, that's also your problem. I like to say uh, housing becomes a problem where you train all the young men how to, be, how to um, shoot guns in the most coordinated and efficient way and they come home, they don't have a house, then it becomes your problem to house them, right? Um, mm. So, so I think that's that's where the world got its cheap housing and high home ownership. We went from we went from in the forties percent home ownership up to seventy two percent home ownership from the Second World War to nineteen seventy one. Like so, one of the few periods in history where any country massively increased home ownership through Commonwealth programs and state development. But also, I think it's fair to say that the access to credit also came along too, and that's part of why you have this explosive private debt now because it's just like keeps ratcheting up. Yeah, well, credit was very much rationed to first home buyers and not investors and landlords and other things. They didn't want them to access credit because there were more other pressing priorities. It was getting people in homes and rebuilding other infrastructure, and so credit rationing was very much a tool of of the day, and and that could be a tool again. So, for example. 2017, um, after the Royal Commission, what you saw is the the interest rate charged for investor mortgages. You saw a half a percent gap emerge between owner occupiers and investors after 2017 mm. Royal Commission. And they pulled the um, interest only loan levels even earlier. I think that was 2015. Remember? Um, so there was a there's this big sort of credit redirection during that time. And what did we just talk about earlier? Well, investors left the market and first homeowners entered the market. And now we have higher home ownership than we um, had had for a decade. Uh, so, so it works, I guess, is the answer at the end of the day. And, and the parallel, sorry, let me just say one more thing about Singapore's public housing model. And, and you know, you get your private property market outcome, that's fine, it doesn't work for everyone, or you should offer another alternative in addition. That's my approach, and that's what Singapore does. But that's also what we do in healthcare. We actually had almost all the same debates we have now about housing, about healthcare in the 1960s and 1970s. And we went back and forth, and this government said, you can't do socialised medicine, no one's going to do that, we've got to subsidise the uh, the private uh, health insurance industry, and if we train more doctors for private hospitals, that you know all the supply side rezoning, the parallels were uh, uncanny. I just read about. It. I just read Bob Hawke's biography, and as I know, Whitlam brought it in the Medicare or whatever it was called then. Fraser took it away, and Bob Hawke put it back. <laughs> yeah, but that was that's a very brief summary. Someone's just written a book, a whole book about this, uh, and it's you know it's tough reading, but there's, there's a lot of parallels in to what we have in housing. And at the end of the day, 
once you get the public system running, I don't think there's anyone now who would say public hospital system, public health, that's terrible. We should get rid of it. American might. <laughs> Socialist. Uh, Ameri- yeah. Well, an American who hasn't visited Australia. But it's, so, because let me tell you, I have a lot of American friends who visited Australia and it's just shocking to show up at hospital, tell them your Medicare number and just get treated for free and then sent home. Like it's just that you could, they come home, maybe they got their arm in their cast because they broke their they come home and they, they don't care about their arm. You can just see their brain like, did that just really happen? What about socialized medicine? What about this? And I remember a friend uh, who's an academic wrote a blog, uh, a hilarious blog uh, post when she first got here. She said, I had an appointment at the public hospital and I was ready for anything with this socialized medicine. I took my scooter, like moped, you know, Italian style scooter. I thought, oh, well, the first thing they're going to do is they're not going to have any parking because it's, you know, cheap and nasty. And she's like, oh, there's free motorbike parking right out the front. And then I went in and I told them my name and I thought, this is where socialized medicine's going to fall down. I'll be waiting here for hours. And she said, I was still standing at the counter filling out the form and someone yelled my name. I was ready to go. And then they said, oh, I had to get a scan. And I thought, this is where they get me. They said they opened one room and then walked across the corridor and opened another one and said, get in the machine for your scan. And then, and she walks out and she said, oh, this is it. Uh, they prescribed her something. Uh, this is where they're going to get me. And uh, she went to the pharmacy. It was $8 for the prescription, uh, whatever it was. And she went and got a scooter from the free parking and rode home and then wrote a blog uh, while her brain was uh, exploding about her first experience with socialized medicine. Well, it's funny you said it because I had a mate who was in America and he got something in his eye or something and he went down to get treated and they, he had to pay like 1500 bucks <laughs> just to, you know, get it looked at. You know, that only took a little bit. For, imagine yeah. having a cashier at the emergency room, you know, ringing it up. Oh, yes, I can see you're bleeding intensely. Uh, MasterCard or Visa, you know. Uh, Anyway, we're so, getting we're getting off track there. We're but getting that's, distracted, that's, but that's, that's my, interesting. No, my point it's is, interesting. But this is why I think you're good. Cultural you're, shift. You're, you're good to follow. People still think Singapore's free market capitalism. Sorry, just to be clear, people still think Singapore is the free market capitalist place, even though ninety percent of people live in publicly provided homes. Mm. It's, it's one of the wealthiest that, countries in the world. So that in the back of your mind. From people listening to this, though, obviously, the one of the reasons I like following you is you don't really have a vested interest in pumping housing or oh no, I say you don't really, you don't have a vested interest in pumping housing or telling people that it's great. Or, you know, you're not trying to sell this la la land where everybody gets rich in property and there's no, <laughs> there's no renters apparently in the, you know, um, but you do the hard work in working out what's going on. And it's a complicated issue because there's lots of competing things, interest rates, inflation, supply demand first home buyers investors superannuation all these things feeding in churning in all the time everybody throwing their two cents in um so how can people follow what you're writing about housing as you update what you're looking at yeah well the best place these days is fresheconomicthinking.substack.com so i've moved most of my weekly writing onto substack and you'll find my early thoughts on lots of different things some interesting graphs of data i'm tinkering with each day that's a sort of uh, a live feed of my thinking uh that goes up there i'm on twitter at dr cameron murray all one word uh and uh that's that's the 
the main place that you will find me and my writing. All right. So, well, just to sum up, finally, we'll go back to what we said before. As far as you're concerned, housing is not redlining. The biggest risk is overseas, probably central bank actions. If they have, if they keep going up, Australia will have to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interested in investing in housing, there are opportunities there. If you're a potential home buyer, well, perhaps it may not make you money, but you know you'll probably be all right if you buy now with a you know traditional ten year time frame plus. Um, depending on the city, that kind of thing. Is that fair to say? Perhaps I should have yeah, let you yeah. sum up. <laughs> no, no you're, you're much better at the summaries than me. I, I just like digging into details and telling uh, tangentially related stories. But you, you know, that's, that's that's right. Uh, I don't think we're at that. Uh, you know, I like the analogy of the rubber band. We're not we're not super tight right now. Uh, but yes, the central banks are pulling tighter by raising rates, but. Historically, we have been um, we have had markets keep rising in these situations, which is why I'm not sort of predicting anything right now. And I certainly think if there was the overall fall of fifteen to twenty five percent on the average Australian property market price index that Chris Joy is predicting, we'll see interest rates come back uh, in that scenario as well. Mm, so. And it'd be interesting to see what if he comes out and, and walks back or or stays stays the course depending on what happens well so. I, th- I think he's you know although he's very aggressive and bold with his calls he they are very conditional still so he's uh, i think mm. it's still chris joy's subject to another one percent on top yes. of a cash rate uh and one percent is is a lot it's is it likely we'll find out how long will it last another question that we don't know the answer to cool all right, mate. Well, thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure. And uh, I already follow you on your Substack stuff, so I see everything you do. So if you're listening, definitely uh, get on board as well. And we'll check back in a couple of few months and we'll see what's happening. Right. Thanks for the, thanks for the chat, Callum. <laughs> Sorry, buddy.